Last week, we began looking at Paul's letter to the Colossians. And as our starting point, we noticed this letter is about true spirituality. The Christians in Colossae find themselves presented with various spiritual options or spiritual paths. And in his letter to them, Paul wants to save them, he says, from being taken captive by hollow and deceptive spirituality. He wants them to understand and to enjoy true spirituality. And we saw that even in his introduction to the letter, even before he mentions the other spiritual options that are appealing to the Colossians, before he delves into that, Paul is presenting the foundations of true spirituality. He's showing the goodness of true spirituality. So that even before he mentions the other options, those options will be seen to be hollow and unsatisfying. And last week we looked at the first eight verses of the letter. We saw three things that are foundational for true spirituality. A loving community united by faith in Christ Jesus. A clear and secure hope for the future and a fruitfulness that fulfills our deepest purpose. We saw how all of that is in contrast to what we called silent disco spirituality. In other words, the kind of spirituality that is all about me having my own personally constructed spiritual experience. Just like people at a silent disco who are all listening to their own personal mix of tunes. Now, initially, that kind of spirituality might be very attractive, but ultimately it is deeply unfulfilling because it doesn't truly involve me in something that is bigger and greater than myself. That was last time. And now as we continue reading this morning, Paul is going to deal with something else that is foundational to true spirituality, knowing God. Any form of spirituality has to consider what is involved in knowing God. Now, it is true, some people who call themselves spiritual would stop short of using the word God. They might speak about a higher power or a spiritual energy, something like that. But even if they don't use the word God, To one degree or another, people who consider themselves to be spiritual explorers, they all recognize we are more than just flesh and bones. We're more than just computers made of meat. And so every spiritual explorer has to consider what is involved in knowing that higher, greater power, knowing God. And already in his introduction, Paul has explained who God is. He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We heard that back in verse 3. So as far as the Bible is concerned, there are not many gods. There is just one. And he has revealed himself through his Son, Jesus Christ. Knowing God, then, means knowing this God. There is no other. This is the God who is there to be known. So let's read what Paul says about knowing this God. If you're turning there in a church Bible, you'll find it on page 1182. 
or in the larger print Bibles, 1829. Colossians 1, and we'll read from verse 9 down to verse 14. Just to give you the context, Paul begins in verse 9 by saying, for this reason, meaning, because of the good things I have heard about your faith, love, hope, and fruitfulness, the things mentioned in verses 1 to 8, because of all this, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption." the forgiveness of sins. This is God's Word. And it's a prayer. This is what Paul prays for these Christians. Men and women who he knows are faced with other appealing spiritualities. And as Paul tells these people about his prayer, he is showing what's involved in true knowledge of God. It involves, first of all, learning what is important to God. That immediately takes us away from the majority of alternative spiritualities. Because so much spirituality is the exact reverse of this. It's about what's important to me. That is the start and the end point of it, really. Think of people you know who call themselves spiritual. Isn't, isn't that the focus of their spirituality? What is important to them? Any interest they have in God or a higher power, it's about trying to figure out how to get that higher power to provide what is important to them. But look again how Paul prays for the Colossians in the middle of verse 9. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. True knowledge of God involves learning what is important to Him. That's what we're talking about when we talk about God's will. God's will is what He wants. It is what pleases Him. When it comes to true spirituality, what is really important and significant is not what I want, it's what God wants. Now, yes, ultimately, true spirituality brings us great fulfillment, brings us deep satisfaction. This letter will have plenty to say about that. But any spirituality that begins with what I want 
is a spirituality that will never fulfill or satisfy me. It is just a fact that our fulfillment and satisfaction come not through seeking our own will, but through seeking God's will. But how do we come to know God's will? Here in our passage, it might seem verse 9 is telling us there's not much we can do to learn God's will. Paul says he's asking God to fill the Colossians with knowledge of his will. He says, knowledge of God's will comes through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, meaning God the Holy Spirit. So we have to ask, are we stuck at this point then? Is there nothing we can do to know God's will except to pray to know it and then wait, hoping that God will zap us with wisdom and understanding of his will? Well, we saw last week the New Testament does not exist in a vacuum. It exists against the background of the Old Testament. So much of what the New Testament tells us becomes clearer when we hear it with the Old Testament in mind. We saw that last week already as Paul picked up in Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter of the Old Testament. And here in verse 9, it seems there is also an Old Testament background. Listen to this prophecy from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah here is looking forward to the Messiah, the king who will come from the line of David, and he says this, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David, so we're talking about a descendant of Jesse and David. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and of understanding. So the Messiah to come, according to Isaiah, will have the wisdom and understanding needed to know God's will. And roughly 700 years after Isaiah's prophecy, the Messiah did come. He came in the person of Jesus Christ. How does that relate to what Paul is saying here in our passage? Well, the connection is, if you and I want to know God's will, if you want to know what is important to God, we must come to the one who has the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Later on in this letter, Paul will say that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Jesus Christ. In the passage we look at next week, Paul will tell us all things hold together in Jesus Christ. So, come to Jesus, look at his life presented to us in the New Testament, listen to his words recorded in the New Testament, take note of what Jesus tells us about his Father in heaven. Take note of how Jesus affirms the instruction of the Old Testament. And the portrait of God that's given to us in the Old Testament. Come to Jesus. Commit to learn about Jesus and listen to Jesus. And you will learn what is important to God. You will increasingly be filled with the knowledge of God's will. 
Now, as great as this is, as great an insight as this is, there is also a big danger for us here. The big danger is that many of us actually enjoy learning new things. We get invigorated by new insights. We love the idea of broadening our outlook and our understanding. And we can make the mistake of thinking that true spirituality is nothing more than that. We said last week, many people today see themselves as spiritual explorers. They're interested in spiritual ideas, including the teaching of Christianity. They're keen on the idea of knowing God, but they're not so interested in obeying God. They're not seeking to learn God's will so that they can then do His will. They're just seeking a bit more knowledge for themselves. I remember seeing a film years ago about some American tourists who came to visit London. And one of the things you may know about America is that they don't have roundabouts. Not very many of them anyway. The average American will never have been on a major roundabout. And in this film, the American family rented a car in London and they went for a drive. They were aiming to visit Big Ben. But first, the dad had to negotiate a big, busy roundabout. You can probably guess what happened. It's an experience many American tourists have had. The dad managed to pull out onto the roundabout and as they went around it, he was very excited to spot Big Ben in the distance. Look, kids, there's Big Ben. The problem was, for the life of him, he couldn't manage to get off the roundabout. There just never seemed to be an opening that he could get to an exit. Each time around, he pointed out Big Ben, but he could never get any closer to Big Ben. And the scene closed with the family still in the car, still circling the roundabout in the dark. I mention that because spirituality can be a bit like that for many people. Knowledge of God can be like that. Many people get stuck going round in circles. They will discuss God. They will debate with others about God. They might learn more and more information about God but they never seem to actually get any closer to God. He's over there, like a landmark they can see, but they're over here going round and round in circles, never really moving forward. Do you know anyone like that? Maybe you're like that. So how do you stop being like an American tourist when it comes to knowing God? Well, the answer is true knowledge of God. Yes, it does involve learning what's important to him, but that is not all it involves. It also involves living to please him. That is what gets us off the spiritual roundabout and moves us forward. Look how Paul explains that. In verse 9, he's spoken about being filled with the knowledge of God's will. Now in verse 10, he goes on to say that knowledge is not an end in itself. 
Not at all. We seek to learn what is important to God, verse 10, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. That's what gets us off the spiritual roundabout. Committing ourselves not just to learning information about God, but to live a life worthy of Him and please Him in every way. That is the way to exit the spiritual roundabout. But it is also the exit many spiritual people are not willing to take. They'll debate and discuss. They will bat ideas around endlessly. And they will find some enjoyment in doing that. But in the end, they move no closer to God. Because they won't take the road of living to please Him. And it's not hard to see why many people hesitate at this point. It's not hard to see why they won't stop circling the roundabout and commit to taking this road forward. People hesitate because it is a big commitment. It is a whole life commitment. It alters the whole course of your life. It's easy to explore the Bible's teaching about God while still living your life as if you are God. But that kind of spirituality isn't really serious. It's half-hearted. It's like the American tourist who says he wants to visit Big Ben, but he will not make the uncomfortable commitment of turning the steering wheel left and cutting across the line of traffic. Circling the roundabout is not getting him anywhere, but it feels comfortable. It feels low risk. And so he just stays there. True knowledge of God doesn't stop with learning what's important to him. It presses on into living to please him. And look how Paul explains what is involved in that. He gives us four characteristics of a life that pleases God. And you can spot each of them because each one of them is tied to a word ending in I-N-G, a participle. A life that pleases God involves, first of all, in the middle of verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work. That's clear enough. The Bible tells us plenty about what good works are. There's plenty of instruction in the Bible about what works God wants us to do. And we'll find some of those instructions later on in this letter. But the second characteristic of a fruitful life might be surprising. At the end of verse 10, living to please God leads to growing in the knowledge of God. In other words, once we begin to take steps of obedience to God, we discover we are getting to know Him better. And if we think about that, it makes sense. God's instructions reveal His own character. And as we begin to obey His instructions, we are going deeper into who He is. We're moving from knowing Him in theory to knowing Him in practice. For example, as we obey God's command to forgive those 
who have sinned against us. As we do that, we are getting to know the God who forgave our sins. As we give sacrificially to meet the needs of others, we are getting to know the God who gave sacrificially to meet our eternal need. Every good work that God calls us to do is an echo of his own good work. As you and I enter into those good works, we grow in the knowledge of him. Now, at this point, it has to be said, it would be very easy for us to misunderstand what Paul is setting out for us here. This is not about searching for the hero inside ourselves. It's not about pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It's not about just trying harder so we can do enough to please him. No, remember the order of what Paul has told us. We come to Jesus to learn what's important to God. Jesus has the spirit of wisdom and understanding. He reveals God to us. When we come to Jesus, we begin to know God. And then we commit to living a life that pleases God. And look where the strength to do that comes from in verse 11. It is not a strength you and I find within ourselves. It is about being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. Living to please God is not about you and me producing some superhuman effort till finally God is pleased. No, we come to Jesus, we make it our aim to please God in every way, and God himself comes and supplies the power we need. Sometimes we overlook this. We look at what other people are going through in their lives, or we worry about what we personally might have to go through, and we say, I could never face that. I could never obey God in that situation. I could never persevere in a trial like that. I don't have the strength. Of course you don't have the strength. Of course you don't. But if you ever do find yourself in that situation, God himself will supply the strength. His might is glorious. So don't imagine tough situations like many of us are prone to do. We imagine things that might happen. Don't imagine those kind of things and then collapse in a heap just thinking about them. If the situation comes, you will be strengthened with all his power. I've seen Christian brothers and sisters go through terrible ordeals with great endurance and patience. And I look at them and I know very well I don't have that stuff in me. But the Bible tells me if I was ever in a similar situation, God's glorious might would strengthen me. 
He is the source of great endurance and patience. And he supplies those things to those who commit to please him in every way. So far, we've had three characteristics of a life that pleases God. Tied to those three I-N-G words. Bearing fruit in every good work. Growing in the knowledge of God. Being strengthened with all power. The fourth characteristic is in verse 12. Giving joyful thanks to the Father. Now we all know this world can be grim. The things we hear in the news are grim most of the time. The situations you and I face can be grim. But those who learn what is important to God and who live to please God are not grim. At least that is not our settled posture in life. To be grim is to be stern and severe. Joyless, really. And we all have our grim moments. But that is not our general disposition. When you and I show great endurance and patience, it is not grim endurance and patience. Now, as I said, we all have our moments of that. But sooner or later, what rises to the surface in us is joyful thanks to the Father. If we know the Father, truly know Him through Jesus Christ, then it is impossible for us to go long without giving joyful thanks to the Father. When we gather together as God's people, Yes, there are weighty things for us to talk about. There are solemn things. We often come here bowed down with our cares. Often in our prayers together, we bring troubling things to God. We do all of that, and it's right that we do. We don't come here to be entertained. You can get much better entertainment in other places. We come here to deal with serious things. And as we do, sooner or later, what rises up is joyful thanks to the Father. Not because we've been diverted for a few minutes away from serious things, but because we have realized again He is with us in the serious things. He will carry us through the serious things. That is part of what it means to know God. We're able to say with the writer of Lamentations, I remember my affliction. My soul is downcast within me. Yet, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Genuine knowledge of God leads us to give joyful thanks to God. 
It might take days, it might take weeks, it might take months for joy to break through sometimes. But genuine knowledge of God will not leave us perpetually grim. And as Paul closes his prayer for the Colossians, he shows us the truths that cause joy to break through. We've seen true knowledge of God involves learning what's important to him, living to please him. And Paul reminds us here at the end of our passage, true knowledge of God also involves enjoying his rescue and his gift. We cannot truly know God without coming to appreciate the heights and the depths of what he has done for us in his son Jesus. And these are the truths that cause joy to break through. If we think of God as a stern, distant, uninvolved God, then we haven't truly begun to know him at all. Look how Paul describes what he has done for us in verse 12. The father we give thanks to is the father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Notice how all of that is in the past tense. There's no uncertainty about any of this. It has already been accomplished. God has qualified us to share in the kingdom of light. He has rescued us from darkness. He has brought us into the kingdom of his son. In him we have redemption. Last week we heard about the hope stored up for us in heaven. What we, what we can look forward to in the future. Here we have an equally wonderful description of what we have already from God today. In the Old Testament, the greatest rescue recorded there was God's rescue of his people from Egypt, from the dark dominion of Pharaoh. God redeemed his people from that slavery. He led them eventually into their inheritance, the kingdom of Israel, but as the Old Testament ended, the Israelites were essentially back to square one. Their sin led to a new slavery, this time in exile in the dark dominion of Babylon. We've been looking at that in, on Sunday evenings in Lamentations. And yet even in the midst of that, the Old Testament prophets spoke of another rescue to come a new redemption and a new kingdom. And it wasn't just a, a return to the flawed kingdom under David and his successors. It was a better kingdom with a better king. That's what the Old Testament was looking forward to. And here Paul shows true knowledge of God involves the realization that new redemption has been brought about by Jesus Christ. And that new kingdom is his kingdom. By his death on the cross, in our place, he rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Through faith in him, we have 
forgiveness of sins. We are already citizens of his eternal kingdom. We are already qualified to share in that inheritance. Nothing more has to be done. We've already begun to enjoy some of the benefits of that kingdom. We're no longer slaves to darkness and to sin. We have a new freedom to obey our new king. There can be no true knowledge of God without knowledge of these incredible realities, present realities for us. So to truly know God is to enjoy his rescue and his gift. Any spirituality that ignores or that sidelines these things is a hollow and deceptive spirituality. Any spirituality, doesn't matter whether it's the newest spiritual fad or the most ancient spiritual fad dusted up, dusted off and warmed over, any spirituality that doesn't center on the redemption brought about by Jesus Christ is lame and limp and lifeless. And in the end, it is joyless as well. Joy comes from knowing we are forgiven and loved and welcome in the throne room of heaven. So please, don't settle for any lesser spirituality. Don't make do with any lesser knowledge of God. And when we have the joy of his forgiveness and his love, doesn't that move us to learn what is important to him? Doesn't that make us want to live to please him? in all things. So let's renew our commitment to him together. We're going to do that as we respond to God's word by bringing our praise to him. We're going to sing King of Kings, Majesty.
Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.